Welcome to episode 30, the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model for chronic pain. Why is it important? By Mark Pugh. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to all of those out there listening to this podcast. My name is Mark Pugh. I'm Senior Vice President of Product Development and Marketing for Preferred Medical, a pharmacy benefit manager in the workers' compensation arena in the United States. And I'm pleased to be part of Clearly Clinical uh, and the educational outreach that they are creating from a library standpoint. This is the first podcast of a series of three in regardings to the biopsychosocial treatment model. In fact, the title of this very first podcast is The Biopsychosocial Spiritual Treatment Model for Chronic Pain. Why is it important? Well, you will find out quickly why it's important, at least in my opinion. And hopefully, if you're familiar with some of the concepts, uh, they will resonate with you. If you're not familiar with some of the concepts, Hopefully, I will bring some new nuggets to life uh, for you to consider in regards to how to interact with patients, how to interact with friends and family um, as patients or caregivers, um, and just generally be a good citizen um, in society and how we deal with things. So let's get started. The introduction that you may have read in regards to this podcast, I'll just read to make sure that you're uh, comfortable with where we're heading. While an integrated interdisciplinary biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model is not a new concept, advances in medical science and the westernization of chronic pain treatment has tipped the scales towards a biomedical model. However, many payers like insurance companies and workers' compensation providers are finding out the hard way that not treating the whole person can negatively impact clinical outcomes, especially for chronic pain. As in all of life, balance is key. Choosing the most appropriate and holistic treatment regimen from the beginning is key to a good ending. This course will describe how addressing the physiological drivers of pain is an important component for recovery from injury and resumption of activities, and will cover how the different facets of the biopsychospiritual treatment model can influence positive chronic pain treatment outcomes. So as we're getting started, let's talk about and discuss chronic pain. Uh, it is an epidemic, if you will, uh, across the country and across really planet Earth. According to the National Institutes of Health, of, per 2012 data, there were 25.3 million American adults that have some form of daily pain. Of those, 14.4 million experienced Category 4 pain, which is the worst kind of uh, dangerous uh, and difficult and long-lasting pain that you can address that. So according to the American Academy of Pain Medicine, who uh, as a part of their name says pain, so they should know it pretty well. They estimated back in 2011 that 1.5 billion plus people worldwide have some level of chronic pain. And of that, approximately 100 million Americans are dealing with chronic pain. Now to someone simple like me, uh, I am not a clinician. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a pharmacist, I'm not a chemist, uh, I'm not an uh, attorney, I'm not a claims adjuster, I'm not a nurse, um, but I have be become very educated on this subject uh, because of my work in workers' compensation since 1990. I have been engaged and identified in uh, and uh, addressing the medical appropriateness of opioid treatment in workers' compensation since 2003. I've been speaking publicly and writing articles and creating blog posts and tweeting, uh, et cetera, on social media since 2012. Um, I have uh, sat at the feet of really smart doctors, really smart pharmacists, really smart psychologists, really smart nurses, really smart physical therapists, really smart attorneys, uh, and claims adjusters all over the board that you can think of from a variety of different perspectives. So my opinion is educated based on experience uh, with having viewed hundreds of thousands of pages of medical records um, and tens of thousands of drug transactions, um, as well as talking with all these smart people and reading constantly. Uh, and I'm pretty comfortable 
that we have lots of issues with chronic pain in America. Um, and unfortunately, we don't necessarily deal with it as well as we could. Because to a simple person, again, I'm not a clinician, but to a simple person like me, chronic pain is the pain you wake up with every morning that you go to sleep with every night, and it doesn't go away until you die. Uh, tomorrow may be worse than today. Tomorrow may be better than today. But you realize that that pain is not going away. And in some way, shape, or form, you're going to have to deal with it. Now, when you talk about healthcare costs, again, back to the American Academy of Pain Medicine, um, the cost in America related to dealing with chronic pain is anywhere from 560 to $635 billion. So tremendous issues um, with trying to deal with that pain. Um, and there was a Healthline article that I came across recently, and they, and they talked about the primary causes of chronic pain. They can include headache. They can include post-surgical pain that certainly is painful right after surgery. But if things didn't go quite so well, that could create pain for the long term. Post-trauma pain, someone uh, had an amputation someone uh, suffered paraplegia or quadriplegia, there's going to be that traumatic event that creates pain for the lifelong uh, uh, duration. Um, lower back pain, significant problem. The vast, uh, the vast majority, uh, I've read statistics, is as high as 35 to 40% of people who deal with chronic pain, it's in the lower back area. Uh, and that, that's certainly a, a problem if you're sitting too long, if you're standing too long. Um, and certainly as you get older, uh, uh, that those, those things don't get any better. Certainly cancer pain can turn into chronic issues. Arthritis pain, whether it's osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, people you've seen, I'm sure, uh, folks whose fingers are gnarled up, um, who have scoliosis, uh, who uh, uh, can tell the weather, uh, you know, several hours or even days ahead of time. Uh, that is arthritis pain, and that certainly oftentimes doesn't get any better over time. Neurogenic pain, pain caused by nerve damage uh, that can become from the paraplegia, the quadriplegia, or uh, um, uh, neuro neuropathy. Um, my father had Parkinson's back in the day. That is an issue with the full nervous system, um, and certainly there's a constant tingling if you will, um, from that kind of pain. And then psychogenic pain, pain that isn't necessarily caused by disease or injury or nerve damage, things like uh, uh, complex regional syndrome, pain syndrome, or fibromyalgia, pain that appears to be significant, but you can't really find the cause of it. So there's a variety of different uh, origins of chronic pain, if you will. You may have also heard that we have an opioid epidemic, uh, and it's not a surprise or shouldn't be um, that a lot of the issues related to the opioid epidemic have been related to people looking for and searching for solutions for their pain, whether it be acute pain, the subacute phase, or the chronic pain, uh, which based on your definition is anywhere from six weeks to, uh, six, uh, to, six weeks to three months uh, in regards to the development of uh, transition from acute to chronic pain. So, in my opinion, the opioid epidemic really started with the overprescribing back in the mid-1990s. And there were four things, interestingly, that happened. Uh, in looking back, they were strategically connected, but they were not connected at the time. But uh, back in uh, those mid-1990s, early to mid-1990s, doctors were accused of undertreating pain. In fact, several doctors uh, were actually sued for not having treated pain, especially chronic pain, appropriately and thinking that opioids could be a solution for that. Um, at that same time, there were a variety of new prescription opioids that were introduced to the market uh, that were advertised as the magic pill, the pill that had no addictive properties, the pills uh, that could resolve all the pain without any side effects. Um, and uh, uh, we are finding out through a variety of lawsuits around the country um, that that may have been uh, uh, mismarketed. Uh, I'll use that term at least, uh, in how they were addressing that. So those two things happened as, as in addition to pain being added as the fifth vital sign, right alongside temperature and blood pressure uh, and the other four, um, pain, which is completely subjective, um, was added as a fifth vital sign. If you've been to a doctor, you've been to a hospital, uh, uh, been to uh, a, a, a emergency treatment, um, you recognize that almost 
always the first question, or at least um, early on in the process, is asking what your level of pain is on a scale of 1 to 10. Well, when you're asked that question, you may think this is really, 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 really bad pain, and it's got to be a 10 out of 10, without understanding that 10 out of 10 means that somebody's on top of you doing CPR because you're about to die. You may say, well, if it's not a 10 out of 10, it's got to be a 9 out of 10 because this is just debilitating pain. Well, 9 out of 10 means you're in basically in the fetal position in intractable pain, not having driven yourself to a doctor's office, sitting upright in a chair and having a lucid conversation. So that pain is the fifth vital sign, certainly was a component uh, of this. And then in addition to that, the Press-Ganey patient satisfaction surveys where patients were asked how they were treated. So all those different things happened in mid-1990s. And you look at all the statistics, you see that people were searching for a solution to their pain, oftentimes a solution to their chronic pain. Um, and there came in this mid-1990s this kind of perfect storm of, we've got the pill for you. Well, as it turns out, it may not have been a pill for most people. Now, I do believe that there is an appropriate role uh, for opioids, um, even in chronic uh, non-cancer pain. And I published a blog post on LinkedIn on August 3rd of 2017 called Appropriate, Not Zero Opioids. So when we're talking about the opioids, uh, there is a role for opioids in the acute phase, in the subacute phase, even in the chronic phase that, in, that uh, does not include non-cancer pain but it's not the numbers that we have been seeing. And there are other alternatives, which we're gonna be talking about, but uh, the, you know, there are uh, phar pharmaceutical op options, uh, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, uh, neuropathic uh, drugs like gabapentin. Um, there are certainly non-pharma options like uh, stretching, like exercise, like better nutrition. There's a variety of things that are going on, but there is a subset of people where opioids are appropriate. So throwing opioids out and say they have no place in the treatment of chronic pain is as an inappropriate statement as saying as that opioids are the solution for everyone with chronic pain. Neither of those statements is accurate. There is a portion of the population that will respond to opioids long-term and they will receive benefit and function and the benefits will, uh, will exceed the uh, risks and the side effects but for other people will not and they'll need to find something else. So that's all incorporated into what's happening from a chronic pain standpoint. But really what I wanna hone in on is a treatment philosophy associated with treating especially chronic pain since that's in the title, might as well stick with it, right? So there's two treatment philosophies. There's the biomedical approach and the biopsychosocial spiritual approach. And they're two diametrically opposed treatment philosophies. Um, and so what I want to do is kind of go through the biomedical first to kind of present what that is, um, and then to uh, juxtapose that to the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model. So I went to uh, the resource that everybody goes to for definitive answers, Wikipedia, and I looked up biomedical, and it basically said the biomedical model of health focuses on purely biological factors and excludes psychological environmental, and social influences. So it's really about the body um, in trying to figure out what the disease is, what the source of the disease is, what the source of the pain is, what the source of the condition is, and deal with it from a physiological standpoint. And, and granted, there are things that happen to our body that require a biomedical approach. If you break your leg, you are probably going to need some kind of biomedical approach to that. Meditating about that probably isn't going to fix it. A cast well. Maybe if it's a displaced fracture, maybe it's going to require surgery. So there certainly obviously is a role with that from a cancer standpoint. Um, you, you know, certainly the power of positive thinking can certainly help and maybe changing your diet might help, but the vast majority of people are going to need some kind of biomedical approach, the, the chemo and the radiation and maybe even surgery to excise the, the cancerous tissue. So there is a role for the biomedical. Um, but interestingly enough, back in 1977, a gentleman named George Engel, who's really kind of considered the father of the biopsychosocial uh, philosophy, um, he came up with his concerns um, in regards to the biomedical model. 
And uh, in an article that's included in the references that uh, hopefully you got as a part of this podcast, um, he criticized its excessively narrow focus for leading clinicians to regard patients as objects and for ignoring the possibility that the subjective experience of the patient was amenable to scientific study. And basically what he wanted to do is he wanted to reverse the dehumanization of medicine and the disempowerment of patients. So if you think of a biomedical treatment philosophy, if you will, that there's got to be something uh, from a physiological standpoint that you can fix. And again, a lot of things that happen to our bodies require some form of biomedical uh, approach. So please don't listen to this podcast and go, you know, Mark is suggesting that nobody ever has any surgery anymore, that there's no, you know, that's not what I'm after. What I'm saying is that there's a role for biomedical, but oftentimes if you only limit it to what's physically wrong with you, you can miss some very important other components to the issue that without addressing them, you're going to get suboptimal outcomes. And that's really what uh, George Engel mentioned in regards to dehumanization of medicine the, 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 and the um, considering patients as objects, really just looking at them as a physical being without taking into account that there are other things that are happening inside their head, happening at home, that psychosocial issue. Um, those are comorbidities that certainly could impact their ability um, to get better. So what biomedical does to some degree is it counts on somebody or something else to solve my problems. So we're looking for a doctor to solve my problem by doing surgery. We're looking for something else like a pill that may be very easy to take. But the surgery itself, if not set up properly, with understanding who that person is and where they're coming from and how they approach their pain and how they approach life in general. You could have a situation where uh, you get suboptimal outcomes even though everything worked perfectly. Or if you're relying solely on chemicals to take care of your problems. If you think that uh, the only way to deal with anxiety is by taking a benzodiazepine, that may solve the problem. If you're bi bi uh, uh, bipolar, that's a chemical imbalance. It might require chemicals in that. But if you say that only chemicals will solve your problem, how do you deal with stress? How do you deal with anxiety? How do you deal with depression? How do you deal with what, what happens when life throws you a curveball? When you get something that you don't expect? When things don't go as you want? What happens then? A pill can't solve that. It can sedate you. It can medicate you. It can make you not care. But at some point, the, uh, the, the effects of the pill are going to wear off and you're going to wake up and you're going to be right back to where you started. Maybe even worse because you drank yourself silly and now you got a hangover, but you still can't pay the bills. You took a benzodiazepine and that relaxed you greatly so you could go to sleep, but you wake up the following morning, and if you haven't dealt with what's happening at home and the dysfunctional family that you're a part of, you're still going to be very anxious about your future. So understanding beyond the biomedical, beyond the, the concept or the expectation that somebody or something else is going to solve your problem is really, really key. So biomedical is very important. It's key to solving some medical conditions for sure, but it may not necessarily solve the problem. And you've probably seen this happen yourself. You've probably noticed two different people with the same condition. They had excellent clinicians involved up front making good decisions. There were no complications from the treatment. One person returns to function, returns to work, they're happy and, and uh, uh, back to life in general, and another person does not. They, quote unquote, go south. They have bad outcomes. Uh, they don't go back to work. They don't regain their function. Their quality of life continues to decrease, and it becomes kind of that death spiral, maybe not just metaphorically, but literally a death spiral um, from what started as a, um, a treatable situation that ended up being untreatable. Same condition, 
excellent clinicians, no complications. One person turned out well, the other person didn't. That's what we're talking about, those psychosocial comorbidities that can impact uh, how they resolve those circumstances, how they deal with the treatment not going as expected, um, how they understand that this is a pain that is not going away, and therefore they need to maybe change their approach and change their attitudes about things. So I, again, uh, from my introduction, I'm in the workers' compensation industry, which is a unique uh, concept. Uh, it's uh, zero uh, uh, out-of-pocket for the injured worker. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's up to the employer to take care of them and all their medical history. That creates some interesting dynamics, um, creates some secondary gain potential issues. Um, so work comp is complicated. There's no out-of-pocket for the injured worker. Um, so in that particular case, uh, they may not uh, own as much of their health care as far as trying to make sure that the right thing is done, etc. So the state of Ohio is a monopolistic state. Um, it, it, it's a state workers' compensation where the workers' compensation is basically managed by the state um, as opposed to non-monopolistic. Um, where it's a series of insurance companies and third-party administrators and et cetera that uh, work in kind of an open environment. So Ohio has this monopolistic um, environment, so they can kind of mandate um, guidelines. They can come in and say, this is how we want it done, uh, and this is how you're going to do it if you want to get paid. So effective January 1st of 2018, they established some new guidelines in regards to lumbar fusion surgery. Lumbar fusion surgery certainly is something that should not be uh, approached um, lightly. It is something that has potentially long-term ramifications if it goes poorly. And you may have heard or know of people who um, had an initial surgery and it didn't quite go well. And so they go back in, they do a revision surgery and that went well. But after a few years, their vertebrae start um, uh, compressing. And so they end up having more issues and then they go back and do another fusion. And at some point, uh, three, five, 10, 15 years down the road, their entire spinal column is cement, right? It just kind of that that's something that you don't want to go down if you can't if you can help it. Um, and when you talk about workers' compensation, there's some other motivations that the statistics are 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 very, very uh, uh, difficult when it comes to uh, success from lumbar fusion surgery and workers' compensation because of all the things I just mentioned and then add on the unique dynamics of work comp. So what Ohio, uh, uh, the state of Ohio said is that we want to make sure before you do lumbar fusion surgery, we want to make sure that you have established conservative care, that you've tried it and failed it for at least 60 days. And they want an emphasis on physical reconditioning. They want an avoidance of opioids when possible. If you think of Ohio, um, it's somewhat in the epicenter of the opioid epidemic in Appalachia, Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana. That particular area was re really hard hit early on in that. So they have a, a hypersensitivity, if you will, to opioids. And they want an avoidance of provider catastrophizing the explanation of lumbar MRI findings, which is interesting, right? I've heard the story that, you know, if you do an MRI of somebody who's 55 years old, uh, chances are you're going to find something really, really bad uh, in their spine just by virtue of them being 55 years old. So they want to make sure that the provider doesn't look at the MRI and the first words out of their mouth is, oh my God, did you see that nurse? Um, you want to be able to kind of understand what's happening with that and, you know, uh, offer them the opportunity for conservative care. That conservative care is to include at least one of rel uh, relative rest ice heat. If you're familiar with rice, rest ice compression elevation. Um, that's how I dealt with all my sprained ankles back when I felt like I was athletic early on in my life. Um, was that rice, the stuff that Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts talk about. Um, certainly talking about anti-inflammatories and, and dealing with the inflammation and see if the combination of the anti-inflammatory as well as the pain uh, uh, medication, the anesthesia, the, the uh, the anesthesia could help uh, from a pain management, a physical medicine rehab program, trying to go through and um, help them understand what the sources of the pain, um, figure out different alternatives to the pain be beyond surgery, see if there's maybe through exercising, through stretching, et cetera, that there might be um, other ways of dealing with this. 
chiropractic or osteopathic treatment. Um, certainly when you're dealing with the spine, um, you know, chiropractic treatment oftentimes is brought up as a potential uh, source of, uh, of treatment solution for that. Physical medicine um, treatment, which goes to physical therapy and a variety of other things, and then interventional spine procedures and injections, uh, you know, going down that path of uh, epidural steroid injections or, you know, different things, nerve blocks, different things. So they want to uh, try to try to go through all of those things um, for at least 60 days before you do lumbar surgery. But if you look at the bottom of page two, they also include a very important paragraph, and I'll quote it biopsychosocial factors that may affect treatment of the injured worker's allowed lumbar conditions are considered modifiable conditions that may change the need for surgery or improve surgical outcomes if appropriately addressed and must be addressed if identified in the assessment. So if you look at the surrounding context around that particular paragraph, they're talking about behavioral assessment, understanding how this person looks at their pain, looks at their um uh looks at their circumstances looks at their condition looks at their past looks at their future understanding everything that's going into that because those biopsychosocial factors if they live in a a, a difficult circumstance if they were a uh, abused uh, sexually, uh, physically, emotionally, psychologically as a child, there's this concept called ACE or adverse childhood experiences. You're predisposed to addictive behaviors. It reduces your resilience and coping mechanisms. You, you got to understand those different things before you go down the lumbar fusion in conjunction with the conservative therapy. You need to figure that out. Do they have issues with resilience? Well, maybe we need to do a, 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 a a concept called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is also known as talking therapy, which is to help them talk through, work through the issues that have arised in their life. Um, that were they uh, raised in an alcoholic, abusive family situation? That's going to affect your resilience. Now, you may be the person who wants to break the chain and, and you're the opposite end of the spectrum. Or maybe that has created a circumstance within that person that has reduced their capability of dealing with difficult circumstances. You got to understand all that stuff um, and understand how that may be impacting their current management of pain. And certainly, if you go down the surgery standpoint, what's going to happen post-surgical? What happens if the surgery doesn't exactly work well? Are they going to go in the tank? Are they going to be able to handle that? Are they going to be able to kind of put their helmet on, you know, as my mom used to tell me back in the day, rub some dirt on it? Are they going to be able to deal with it and establish it and run over it? And I, they don't care what the obstacle is. They're going to get, go over it, under it, around it, through it. It doesn't matter. The obstacles aren't going to stop them. Or are they going to go, uh-oh, this isn't going to work. And they start to isolate themselves at home. And they never go out. They feel like they can't lift anything. They feel like they can't vacuum. They feel like they can't cook. They feel like they can't talk to anybody. They feel like they, you know, all those different things. That's what's got to come into it. So Ohio looked at it and goes, okay, before we go down the surgical route, number one, we want to exhaust the conservative efforts first before we do that surgery. But in conjunction with that, we really need to take notice of potential comorbidities, psychosocial factors that may impact uh, not only the current management of pain, but also if things don't go well after the fact. So potentially, you don't have to do the surgery because it's about managing the pain. And maybe the risks of surgery exceed the benefits of trying to deal with it on a daily basis. I know a whole bunch of people that are in chronic pain. They are in pain from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to bed. Sometimes it's excruciating pain. Sometimes it's manageable pain. Sometimes pain is at the top of their mind. Sometimes they can push it to the back of their mind. And I know a whole bunch of people in that circumstance that still live high quality lives because they have decided that that pain is not going to stop them from being who they wanted to be, from accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. So understanding those psychosocial factors is really important. So that biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model 
is really focused on the whole person. From a, pre from a patient's perspective, what that means is you're going to have to look at potentially modifying behaviors. So, for example, heart disease. That certainly is a physiological condition. You've got issues with your heart. Okay? That may require surgery. That may require other biomedical type approach. But what about maybe changing your diet and eating more healthily? How about exercising more and losing weight? How about reducing the amount of stress and anxiety in your life? Or here's an interesting one. How about not smoking? So there's things that you can do from a heart disease standpoint. And granted, there, there are certainly circumstances that require a cardiovascular surgeon to crack your ribs and take care of the issue. Completely get that. Not arguing for it. But if you don't look at the behaviors the psychosocial issues, maybe the reason you don't eat healthily is because that's not how you grew up. Maybe you don't exercise because you're afraid of hurting yourself, so there's a fear avoidance circumstance there where actually exercising might be good for you. You know, there, you may or may not know that there's a difference between good pain and bad pain. Bad pain when exercising is it's causing more harm. A good pain means that you can work through it and it's painful during that time period, but after you're done, it comes, it, it, the pain dissipates to some degree. But overall, you feel better because you exercised, right? So one of the things that I decided about five years ago um, is that I could not uh, preach something and not practice it. So I decided to lose 30 pounds and I've done a fairly decent job of uh, maintaining that weight kind of comes and goes depending upon what's on the menu. But, uh, you know, there, there are certain circumstances I travel a lot. So it's sometimes difficult, but I made a commitment to myself after I've lost those, those pounds that I was not going to gain those 30 pounds anymore. So I live in Atlanta. If you're familiar with Atlanta, you're familiar with the Atlanta airport. And if you've never been inside the city of Atlanta, you have been inside the busiest airport on planet Earth, at Atlanta uh, uh, Jackson Hartsfield um, Airport. So we've got concourse T, A, B, C, D, E, F. And I guess we're going to go up to G, H, I, J, K, L, M, O, P. I mean, they'll just continue to expand, right? So there, there's this humongous... Um, airport, and we've got a tram system uh, that can take you from concourse to concourse. Well, I made a commitment to myself after I lost that weight that I was not going to ride the tram as long as I was in concourse C or lower. And I wasn't even going to use the moving sidewalk. I was going to schlep it across the carpet uh, like the old school days. And so, you know, you do all that. So I get through security, you know, work my way from the parking lot to security, through the gates, um, down through the concourses, get to my gate at C42. I look at my Fitbit. It should say 273,000 steps. Instead, it says 3,300. It's like, are you kidding me? I got to do this two more times. 10,000 steps, you know, is the number that Fitbit and, and all these different providers talk about in terms of step uh, targets. But did you know that 10,000 steps is a made-up number? There's nothing scientific that backs up 10,000 steps, but 10,000 steps is a strategic number. 10,000 steps is an attitude, a lifestyle, a changed behavior of being active. It's climbing the stairs instead of riding the elevator. It's walking up the moving escalator. It's taking a jog or even just a brisk walk around the block after lunch. And guess what? You do exercise like that, it reduces your stress and anxiety as well. I've got a friend who's an incomplete quadriplegic. Her neck is broken. She's in pain from the moment she wakes up until the moment she goes down. And she has told me she takes no drugs because... Her analgesia is the treadmill. Her anti-anxiety drug is hiking outside. So modifying behaviors is a part of that whole person. So understanding the behaviors, the attitudes that may be impacting their resilience and coping. Let's talk about attitudes real quick. What about fear avoidance? What about that concept that I'm afraid that uh, if I move too quickly or if I lift too heavy a box or if I get up and walk, 
that I'm going to create more harm than good, that I'm actually going to create more injury. Well, do you know that for sure? If you don't know that for sure, you may be thinking it's bad pain when it's actually good pain or catastrophic thinking. Those people, when you ask them what their pain is on a scale of 1 to 10, they say 473, right? Because their pain is the worst pain that's ever been visited on any human being on the, in the history of mankind on planet Earth, right? If you have catastrophic thinking, chances are really good that it may live up to your expectations and it may be really painful. But if you reconcile that my pain is not a scale, not on 473 on a scale of 1 to 10, but it's actually a 4, can you imagine what your attitude would be if you thought in terms of your pain being a 4 instead of 473? It's got to change your attitude on it, right? What about perceived injustice? That's a huge thing that gets uncovered through cognitive behavioral therapy and, and other um, uh, psychotherapy, behavioral um, psychology uh, treatment modalities like that. It's perceived injustice. I've been wronged. Um, my family's no good. I'm never. I'm not educated enough. I'm not good enough. I always get overlooked for the, uh, you know, the promotions or the stuff. You know, perceived injustice may or may not be right. It may be you. May actually be you that's wrong. It, it may be your supervisor. But if you have that perceived injustice, you're always going to be looking behind the rock to try to find the boogeyman that's actually making matters worse when actually you just kind of need to deal with it. How about establishing resilience? You know, re in reality, we don't really, we, we have an opioid epidemic. We have a benzodiazepine uh, epidemic. Uh, benzodiazepines like uh, uh, have, have killed more people in Florida than opioids. Um, so we've got an overprescribing of, of benzos for anti-anxiety um, and depression and, and the like. I mean, it's a very, very dangerous drug. We got an obesity uh, uh, epidemic. We got all sorts of epidemics you can think of. But uh, bottom line, I think in, in essence, we've got a resilience epidemic, a lack of resilience epidemic, the ability to deal with things that don't go well, to deal with those curveballs. Um, to deal with those surprises out of left field, to deal with the things that didn't go like we wanted to uh, and how to, how to manage that process. So modifying your attitudes from a psychosocial spiritual standpoint, uh, uh, getting rid of that fear avoidance, overcoming that catastrophic thinking and, and getting it more realistic, taking out that perceived injustice or addressing uh, at that uh, injustice. And if it's real, deal with it. If it's not real, get away, get, get rid of it. And establishing that resilience, that, that focus on the whole person from a patient's perspective is really, really important. From a clinician's standpoint, from a biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model, it's really about establishing a, a trusting relationship with the patient. And, and that really requires a conversation. You know, one of the things that um, hasn't done anybody any favors is this concept of the 10 or 15 minute office visit um, for very difficult chronic pain circumstances and, and conditions. How much can you dive into what's happening at home? How much can you dive into um, how they're uh, complying with their drugs or the side effects that are coming from the drugs? How deeply can you dive into family issues that are potentially impacting their stress and the anxiety associated with that? That comes through conversation. That comes through relationship. So from a clinician's perspective, the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model really can only be executed if you've established a trusting relationship and if you have an empathetic curiosity towards the patient. People can sense that you don't care, right? Conversations that you have. People can sense that you don't really, you aren't really listening. You don't really care what they think. You're just waiting for them uh, to take a breath so you can continue your, your monologue, right? Empathy is different than sympathy. Sympathy is good, okay, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry about the circumstances, but that can almost come off as condescending. And it certainly is fairly passive. I'm, I'm really sorry about you. Empathy is kind of seeing yourself in their shoes. Empathy is different. Empathy is actionable. Empathy is active listening. Empathy is relationship and trust. Empathy is spending time and dealing, helping someone deal through and work through circumstances. So understanding and having that empathetic curiosity is really important for a clinician to execute this biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model. And then 
communicating clinical evidence. So, you know, understanding, again, kind of back to that story of Ohio where they're saying don't catastrophize the MRI results. Well, you know, look at the evidence. Look at the diagnostics that have been run. And don't go, uh-oh, that shouldn't be your first response when you look at it. It should be carefully choose your words because hashtag words matter, right? Your tone matters. So figure out how to communicate the clinical evidence of the diagnoses, um, of the potential solutions. Um, don't wait it towards something that I can do to you. Wait it towards something that they can potentially do for themselves and figure out how to do that self-managing. And focus on treatment guidelines, focus on evidence-based medicine, focus on modalities um, that have the best science behind them that show that they're efficacious for this particular condition. So um, I, I, I've consolidated a variety of different references from which I pulled um, this information. They, again, should be as a part of the, the podcast. If you're interested in diving more into the, bio the, the biomedical approach and the biopsychosocial spiritual uh, model, um, uh, it's quick reads, um, and I would uh, strongly recommend you take a, uh, some time and invest uh, to take a look at that. So let's look at an example of, of the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model. So physical therapy certainly would be considered a biomedical treatment model, right? It can include range of motion exercises. It can include stretching that's done by the physical therapist um, or also by uh, the um, uh, self-managed at home. Um, cardiovascular conditioning, getting on the treadmill and working up uh, um, uh, stamina, etc. But it also can be education right? It's having that conversation with them. It's understanding what's going on um, inside their head. So it's, it's getting their buy-in so they'll do it. It's helping them understand the good pain versus the bad pain. It's helping them understand how um, stretching for 10 minutes in the morning, doing planks uh, at the base of your bed for five minutes in the morning can have a dramatic effect on what happens to you at four o'clock in the afternoon um, than if you don't do that at all. Of being able to kind of get limber and so forth, um, trying to figure out do that. So getting that buy-in, that education, then changing the habits, which probably means changing behavior, right? Again, if you need to lose weight, probably eating at a fast food restaurant at 10 o'clock each night through the drive-thru isn't going to help you lose weight. What's going to help you lose weight is to have the discipline uh, to get up and go to the gym or at least to walk around and run some stairs and, and uh, be active and you know do those kind of things. So changing behavior. And it's interesting, um, I've gotten to know quite a few functional restoration programs around the country and have visited with several of them uh, on-premises and uh, 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 met with their medical director and their uh, program directors. I've also had phone conversations and reviews. So I, I got kind of a good picture of, of functional restoration programs. And one in particular in Texas uh, gave me this story that I think uh, correlates with this very, very well. Um, there was this individual patient that after 15 minutes, uh, he uh, consistently uh, stopped could not walk on the treadmill any longer. His legs were quivering. He was out of breath. He was sweating profusely. He just said, I'm done. I'm done. And after two, it was it happened the first week. And okay, okay, maybe that doesn't have the stamina. Happens the second week. Okay, maybe there's something else going on. Happened the third week. It's like, uh-oh, maybe it's not the stamina. Because at 15 minutes, it was like something happened and he was done. And so this functional restoration program was an interdisciplinary model. Um, they consistently had um, issues related to um, uh, uh, getting together as a team and kind of collaborating and looking at the, at the different things that were going on. And so um, they had one of those collaborative team meetings and the medical director who happened to be an addictionologist and the psychologist who was the program director and the physical therapist, the licensed physical therapist got together and the licensed physical therapist goes, this is driving me crazy. I can't figure it out. There's obviously something else going on because after three weeks, certainly he could get past 15 minutes. And the psychologist goes, you know what? Maybe there is something going on. Maybe there's some kind of psychosocial implications here. So rather than trying to push through that wall of the 15 minute by just driving the, the, uh, the treadmill, uh, let me do some cognitive behavioral therapy. Let me do some behavioral psychology. Let me try to figure out what may be going on. And so um, she executed the CBT and she helped that patient kind of talk through some issues, uncovered um, what those issues were, um, and was able to help them resolve that. And so shortly thereafter, he was able to get to a 16th minute, an 18th minute, a 25th minute, a 30th minute, 
Um, if they hadn't done that, if they hadn't gone down that psychosocial approach um, and executed cognitive behavioral therapy to try to understand what's going on, he never would have gotten past 15 minutes on the treadmill because there was a figurative egg timer inside his head that said at 15 minutes, I'm done. Now, who planted that egg timer? Who set the egg timer for a 15-minute uh, uh, duration? That was what was uncovered to the CBT, but they could have tried forever and never gotten him past 15 minutes if they hadn't identified the egg timer, addressed the egg timer, and obliterated the egg timer. So that's an example from a physical therapy standpoint where the biomedical, the stretching, the, the uh, stamina, etc., can and potentially should need to transition into the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model by understanding that it's not just the legs, it's not just the hammies and the quads, it's not just the biceps and triceps, it's the brain. It's what's happening inside their head that can potentially impact that. And understanding that and fully leveraging that is really important. So the biopsychospiritual, biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model creates resilience, creates self-management, looks at the whole person. It's really, really important not to just focus on the body. A lot of smart people have said repeatedly to me that pain is in the brain. Not that it's made up, but pain, the processing of pain, is in the brain. And it goes through all sorts of filters, all sorts of biases, all sorts of things that have built up your entire life. And one person's seven is another person's three is another person's 473. So you've got to address what's going on inside their brain, the psychosocial, spiritual components. And some would argue the comorbidities associated with that. You've got to address those. Otherwise, what's going to happen if you only focus on the biomedical model, you can potentially do everything right and still not get good results because it didn't take into account the whole person. So resilience, teaching people coping mechanisms, teaching people how to manage things that don't go well, teaching people how to figure things out on themselves, self-management, teaching them things that don't take a lot of money or training. For example, mindfulness, meditation. What does meditation or mindfulness have to do with chronic pain? Potentially everything. If you go to your happy place, <laughs> borrowing a phrase from a, from a famous movie, if you go to your happy place, potentially you have a glass half full approach as opposed to a glass half empty approach. Mind over matter, being completely present, not worrying about the past, not worrying about the future, only worrying about the breath in and the breath out. How about deep diaphragmic breathing? As far as I'm aware of, there's not a CPT code to bill for deep diaphragmic breathing. But what has helped deliver millions of babies, probably billions of babies since the, the, since the inception of mankind, what has enabled that? The Lamaze method. Deep diaphragmic breathing. Breathe in, breathe out. It helps manage stress. It helps soothe your nerves. It helps reduce anxiety. If you've ever been in a stressful situation, you know that taking a couple of deep breaths can relax you. And scientifically, it, reduce, it re releases endorphins. It's as if you're exercising by just relaxing. So figuring out ways to self-manage. Yoga is another approach. Tai Chi is another approach. There's a variety of things that you can do. Walking, eating better, sleeping better, etc. How do you deal with that? How do you figure out what works for that individual? How can you help them self-manage that? Well, that's really important to understand. And the only way you can do that is through the whole person, is understanding every single component of that human being, not just their body, but their brain as well. So as we go into the next sets of podcasts, um, we're going to address the psycho-spiritual and the social-economical. So 
Course number two, the second podcast in this series, will address the psycho-spiritual treatment model, the approaches, the comorbidities, what I classify as what happens between the ears, right? So there can be a variety of things that happen um, in that psycho-spiritual model. And let me just uh, preface this. When you hear spiritual, people probably freak out. And it's not about religion. Um, it's not about uh, Christianity versus Hinduism versus Buddhism versus agnosticism versus Jewish Jewishism versus uh, you know Muslim. It's not anything to do with religion. It's about the concept of something bigger, of uh, of something larger than life. Um, if you if you're ever familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, one of the first things that you need to do is to recognize the concept that um, there is something bigger than you. Um, and that is important to understand. So the spiritual is not religion. It's about that concept of getting outside yourself um, and recognizing that there's more to this life. So the psycho-spiritual, what happens between the ears, what's happening in that process in the brain. You know, pain and suffering are, are oftentimes linked together uh, by personal injury attorneys saying, if you've got pain and suffering, I'm your man, I'm your woman that can help get make sure that you get all the money um, that you deserve. Well, pain and suffering are two completely separate words and two completely separate concepts. Pain actually is a good thing, not from a masochistic standpoint, but pain is the concept of, hmm, shouldn't do that again. You know, the first time you touch the oven and it's hot and you burn your finger, you realize pretty quickly, I'm not going to touch it a second time. So pain is part of the human condition. Everybody has pain. Everybody at some point has physical pain. Everybody at some point has emotional pain, has psychological pain. They got pain. Pain's just part of being human. Human. It just happens. You've seen a baby. You see them cry. They're hungry. They don't really know how to say it, so they just cry. And they make your life miserable. Pain is part of the human condition. Suffering is not. Suffering is how you process pain. Suffering is the bias, is the, um, the prejudices, the uh, comorbidities, the things that have happened to you in the past, the negative things, the positive. All that's put into this big old pot, stirred around, and all those things are affecting your ability to manage the pain. So some people suffer. They truly do suffer. It's like, oh, oh. Oh, they just suffer, right? Is that because they can't deal? Is that because the pain is insufferable? Or is that because they don't really know how to manage the pain? So the suffering is how they're processing the pain. How they're processing the pain isn't really helping them to manage the pain. So the second podcast will talk about what happens between the ears, that psycho-spiritual component, how you deal with those other things that are going on inside that, and how to overcome that, how to identify that, how to manage that, both from a clinician standpoint and identifying it, and a patient and a caregiver in identifying that. And then the third and final podcast in the series will address the social economic circumstances, what happens at home. Um, you may have enablers at home. You may have folks that are thoroughly okay with you being overly sedated because you don't argue about the TV remote anymore. You got to understand that those enablers may or may not have your best interest in mind. Um, we absolutely positively know that there are some people that get prescription opioids and they don't use them all, but the people that live with them do. They use them or they sell them. So they want you to keep getting the opioids because you're not using them, but they can make some money off of it. So what happens at home? How about socioeconomic circumstances in, in abject poverty? That's going to be completely different than somebody that's living in a $50 million house. Although just because you live in a $50 million house doesn't mean that you're at peace with yourself, right? Doesn't mean that you're not suffering pain. Doesn't mean that you're handling issues um, uh, very well. You can have people in abject poverty that are absolutely joyful. And you can have people in $50 million mansions that are absolutely, positively just miserable. So those circumstances don't dictate who you are, but they certainly can have an impact on that. There are a number of people who have overcome those difficult circumstances and have risen 
to great heights. In fact, uh, I've seen some studies that, that look at high achievers in, uh, in um, professional sports, in um, theater, in uh, movies and so forth, in political leadership and stuff. And, and the common thread for a lot of them is they started in very, very difficult circumstances, but they were not going to allow those difficult circumstances to define or dictate who they were going to be or what they could become or what they could accomplish. And they had the mindset to overcome. That's certainly admirable. To see someone come from difficult circumstances and be an absolute rock star, uh, usually they also come with a sense of humility because they know where they came from. So understanding those social economic circumstances that we got to deal with from a biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model, what happens at home, um, that's really, really important to understanding everything that's going on. So that's where we're headed with this. But this, what I wanted to do in this first podcast is really kind of explain from my perspective, and again, I'm not a clinician, so you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I have a very educated opinion. I read constantly, um, so much that I don't like to read books because I'm reading for my job all the time, and I'm developing content. I'm As a part of the, the writing aspect, I have to be informed about what I write about, and so I'm very well informed. Even though I'm a, not a clinician, um, I have a, a pretty good opinion on this stuff that has been corroborated with a variety of really, really smart people, people that are much smarter than me, that got decades of education, experience, and clinical standpoint. Um, and to a person, and maybe it's just I hang out with the cool people, but to a person, they say the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model is the proper approach for good clinical outcomes. Hopefully, I have set the stage for you to understand that. So in order to clean up the mess, which is a, a term that I, I coined, um, actually, it's a hashtag. So if you want to see it trending, it's hashtag clean up the mess. I started it in January 2017. It was related uh, back then originally to the opioid epidemic. We create a mess by overprescribing opioids. And then the opioid epidemic evolving into the use of the prescription opioids on the street. Then the illicit use uh, the, the use of illicit opioids like heroin and then fentanyl and then carfentanyl, it's become a real big mess. And we've got to clean up the mess. But we also have to clean up the mess of the lack of resilience, the inability to manage life's difficulties, the inability in this circumstance to manage chronic pain. But the only way that we can hashtag clean up the mess is to use hashtag all of the above. You're never quite sure what is going to work for an individual. There is not a cookie-cutter approach to the treatment of chronic pain. Not every person responds the same way. You're going to have to have a full tool belt. That means you're going to have to have opioids. Maybe in some circumstances, you're going to have to have medicinal cannabis. Maybe you're going to have to have yoga and tai chi, or meditation, or acupuncture, or dry needling, or physical therapy, or chiropractic treatment. Um... You know, just run down the list, cognitive behavioral therapy, chiropractic, it's the whole, we need to have all of that available because you're never sure what's going to work for that person. And that may change over time. What works for them now may not work for them long term. So you got to hash, the only way we're going to hashtag clean up the mess is to use hashtag all of the above. And the only way you can hashtag all of the above, include all the different aspects of everything is to have a hashtag biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model. We cannot solve the chronic pain issue by focusing only on the body. We have to focus also on the brain. Again, what's happening between their ears and what's happening at home. Until we do that, unless we do that, we are going to find people that cannot properly address the pain that will not go away. I look forward to continuing to talk with you during these other uh, two podcasts. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, my name is Mark Pugh, again, M-A-R-K-P-E-W. I'm Senior Vice President of Product Development and Marketing with Preferred Medical. If you're not on LinkedIn but are on Twitter, follow me at RxProfessor. It's a great name, isn't it? And it's really about trying to induce change because my logo says that I'm an educator and an agitator. What I hope to do 
in what I hope to have done in this podcast and hope to do in the subsequent two is to educate you and to agitate you towards action. Thank you so much for listening. We have some test questions to make sure that you were listening. So hopefully you were taking notes and you can answer those questions. Again, love to contact with you. I love to stay in contact with you. And I look forward to chatting with you again in the next podcast. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.